Unless you're in the fourth and fifth grade, then you can uh, go on to your class. Fourth and fifth graders, you are dismissed with the herd back to your classes in the back. Good morning, everybody. All right, we are going to conclude this morning the four-week series we've been in entitled The Cost of Living, just by way of review, the very first week of January, January, however you say that word, the month. We took a look back at 2009 and all the things that God did in the Livingstones Church, which we were stoked and excited for, and at the same time, tried to take a look at 2010 and where we thought God was calling us by way of vision and plans. The next week, we talked then about money-wise, how that relates to us, talked about the budget for the church in 2010, set the uh, budget and gave three phases, and with it gave three numbers, $5, $9, and $12, and what we challenged all those of you who are all in here at the Livingstones Church, that is, if you would give 5 9 or $12 more in 2010 than you did in 2009 would allow us to move forward in three different phases of ministry we'd like to accomplish in 2010. If you did not listen to the message, go back to the podcast. You can find it via our website and take a listen to that, to some of the things and plans going on in 2010. And then we shifted and just started talking about discipleship and money, what it means to call Jesus Lord and what that means for us then in all aspects of our life, but especially in regards to money and finances. And so we've been taking a look at how vital heart and money and how they go together and why Jesus talks more about money than any other topic except for the kingdom of God and why that matters for us. And that if we had to guess what Jesus would say based on his teachings, if he were to sit down with you face to face and just talk money, he would give us some principles. And so the next week we talk about principle number one, I think that Jesus would have us to know that everything that is in our possession rightfully belongs to God. It's God's. And I know that rubs us the wrong way because we have this sense of, no, no, I worked all week for it. I remember the hours I put in. I remember when the paycheck showed up. I have earned this. I deserve that. And it's mine. But if you step back for a moment and think about God's providential care and how you could have been born in any country in the world, but he placed you here and now making you some of the wealthiest individuals on the face of the earth, in that we recognize it is all because of God and he is the owner of everything that we have in our possession and we are just the managers or the stewards of God's things. And all of Jesus' teachings and all of Jesus' parables have this concept in mind God is the owner, we are simply the manager, and the end of his stories always has the owner coming back to take an account, to see the accounting, to see the books, and see what it is that we do with God's things. And you've got two options. Either one, you could use it all for yourself, your standard of living, your indebtedness, whatever it is that your heart's desires, or two, give uh, the bus that God gave to us that we'd spend on ourselves, but in addition, there is a line item within our life that we use the things God has given us for his kingdom purposes and for the purposes of Jesus. Number two, we talked about Jesus gave us another principle that said that our money should reflect that God is the greatest and most important thing in our life. And we talked about this as Jesus talks about Luke chapter 12, verse 34, that our heart and our treasure are intertwined and they're linked together, that there ought to be something by way of how we use money and think about money that should reflect from our hearts that God truly is the most important thing, the priority of our lives. And we talked about the biblical concept of what the Bible calls first fruits. And since most of us aren't into farming and don't really speak in that language, in the end, this is what first fruits is simply this, giving God the first and giving God the best. Now, the thing is, God doesn't ask to have the most. He doesn't say, I should be the largest line item in your budget. What he simply doesn't want is leftovers. He doesn't want to be the scraps. He doesn't want you to sit down with your personal budget and figure out anything else that you want and who you owe and what you'd like in terms of life. And in the end, if there's anything left, I'll give God my chump change. What he's saying is, no, no, I want to be first. 
and I want to be best. And so it means we begin with him, and then everything else flows out of that. This morning, I want to shift and talk about the third principle I think Jesus would give to us, and is the concept that our money should always be leveraged by love. That how we use money and how we think about money should always be leveraged by love. Because Jesus is into love. Jesus is all about love. In fact, there's a story in the scriptures that one day some Jewish leaders are trying to test Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 22, begins in verse 34. This is what it says. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, and if you're wondering, well, who were the Sadducees? They were a group of Jewish leaders and Jewish thinkers in the days of Jesus, and they had gotten into several conversations with Jesus, tried to have a debate with Jesus, and Jesus won. And after Jesus had silenced all the Sadducees, it says, the Pharisees got together. Now, if you're asking who are the Pharisees, the Pharisees are another group of Jewish leaders and Jewish thinkers who were totally into the law. I mean, they loved the law. Their mindset was if we, the people of Israel, could just finally obey the law and the commands that God gave us in the Old Testament, we would finally see God's favor and Israel would be independent and free from the Romans. That's what the Pharisees thought. So it's all about the law, keeping the laws, keeping the commandments, and they huddle together and they think to themselves, we ought to go ask Jesus what the greatest command is. Now the thing is, they think they're going to test Jesus and maybe even trick Jesus. They think that Jesus, you know, a command is a command is a command. A law is a law is a law. They're all important. They're all from God. How could you say one is greater than the other? But Jesus has no problem the moment the Pharisees come to test him, to trick him. This is what they ask. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And I love this. Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, I don't know. let me think about this. I don't... I mean, in a moment, Jesus knows exactly what the greatest commandment is. He could take the entire Old Testament over the 600 laws and commands that are in the Old Testament, and he boils it down to two. And he has no problem saying, oh, no, I mean, I'm totally for God's commands. I'm totally for God's laws. But if you want to boil it all down, if you want to strip it all down, it comes down to two, and the very heart of it is love. Jesus is all about love, and so he responds very quickly with, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And then he follows it up by saying, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. That's what Jesus is saying. He's got no problem. It's not just a command as a command as a command. These two have greater weight than anything else. In fact, they are the summation of all the other commands. If you will learn how to love God and love others, you'll get everything else right. If you could figure out how to put God first in your life, to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, I'm telling you, everything else will fall into place. And so when they come to ask Jesus, he has no problem answering just like that. And what Jesus is giving us is, this is the filter and prism by which we view everything in life. Because there's things that we're going to go through and walk through in this life, things that we're going to encounter that I just don't have a book, chapter, and verse for you. That you're going to come and ask, hey, what does the Bible have to say about this? And the answer is going to be, well, about that specifically, nothing. But what we do have is this prism and filter to view all things, and it is love. Does this lead to greater love of God and to others or less love to God and others? And so in those areas of life that we've got questions, let love be the filter. And that means in everything, the question is love. And so does God tell us exactly how to respond to the person that cuts you off as you're coming down Miami Street? No, but the answer is love. Does God give us a command on exactly what kind of Facebook status update we should have? No, but the command is love. Somebody give me an amen. Come on now, we're talking about Facebook status updates and love. 
This is the filter by which we view all things, including money. And in that, what I think Jesus would call us to is that reflected in, in money is that we are, being, we are leveraging money through love. And there's several places that we can see this, a love of God and a love of neighbor and how it gets flushed out by way of what that means by way of money and possessions. The first one, one of my favorite stories is in Mark chapter 14. Let me, let me read you this story that takes place where I think it is an excellent illustration of this idea of loving God and in that leveraging our money for that sake. Mark chapter 14, here's the story. Verse 1, now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, which means everybody's excited. It's sort of like Christmas time in the first century, except they didn't really celebrate Christmas like at the time of Jesus. But I think it's like, ooh, the Passover is coming. There's going to be a big party, and all the Jews are going to pour into the city of Jerusalem. And so it's going to be just, cra- it's just going to be crazy, but packed and full of excitement and expectation. Two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Okay, here's the behind the scenes. The leaders of the Jews do not like Jesus, and they can't just in the open, in front of everybody, arrest him or kill him. They're trying to think of, how can we do this in a way that no one will really notice? Because the jury is still out. Some people, they really like Jesus. They've been following Jesus. They at least recognize he seems to be prophetic, and it seems that we've seen him do miraculous things. And since the city was going to be full of people, they were worried about a riot. That's what it says in verse 2. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. Meanwhile, Jesus is in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. And I love this. Picture in your mind, they're at the home of Simon the leper. They're about to eat a meal. And and this way they did in the first century. They didn't sit down like in chairs at the table. When you ate, you would like recline and lay down. Isn't that awesome? I don't know where we went wrong with chairs. I would love, I mean, I'm like one step less away from a nap right there, like finishing up. I'm already there. So that's what it looks like for Jesus in the first century. So he's reclined. And he's eating, and he's at Simon the leper. Now, let me just stop for a moment. Let me ask you, how do you think this man got that name? He was probably a leper. And if you know anything about leprosy, you know it is highly contagious. And in the first century, you were considered unclean, and you had to isolate yourself and withdraw from everyone in society. You had to notify, if you were ever out in public, that you were unclean. No one could touch you. Could you imagine the intensity of loneliness and isolation that must exist for people who have leprosy? It was, it was miserable. It was a fate that nobody wanted. And my guess is, even though it doesn't say specifically, my guess is Jesus healed him of his leprosy. And now Jesus is getting to eat with Simon the leper. So this is the setting. There, Jesus is in Simon the leper's home. They're about to eat a meal. And listen to what happens. A woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And I have no idea what nard is, but it sounds disgusting. <laughs> it sounds like lard. And I'm okay with that in cooking, but if I, you know, I, you know, but apparently in the first century, nard was a big deal. And this woman walks in and she's got a jar full of nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Now, what you don't probably realize is at this moment, around the table and in this house and in this room, there is a gasp of shock and horror that is taking place. Because this woman is violating every single societal norm, rule that exists in the first century. 
Women do not just interrupt these sort of dinner conversations, and women don't just come up and touch men or especially anoint men with such oil. It is seen as taboo and inappropriate, and this woman begins to violate all of those, all those rules and all those customs and all those societal norms, and I'm telling you, there was probably a hush that came over and maybe even a gasp as everybody was thinking to themselves, including Simon the leper, what in the world does she think she's doing? And you get a picture of her heart. And in a moment, all she knows is this Jesus is at this table. And she knows by personal experience, we know from other gospels what this man Jesus has done for her life and what he has rescued her from and what he has saved her from. He has literally given back to her life. And she doesn't know when she's going to see him again, but at least at this moment, she's in the same house as this man, and she loves this man. Her heart beats with a great passion for this man because of what he has done for her and for her life, and all she can think about is getting to Jesus and giving an extravagant expression of generosity and love and kindness, and so she breaks open this jar of nard and pours it on Jesus to anoint him, and then listen to what happens in the background. Verse 4, some of those present were saying indignantly, see that's how you get the tone, right? It's indignant. You got to get that attitude, right? It's not just a, what's she doing? No, no, I mean, they're like hacked off, indignant about what's going down. And they say to each other, what a waste. What a complete waste of all that perfume. And then they get like super self-righteous about what could have been done with this money. And they say, it could have been sold. It, it, was, it says, this is, it was sold for more than a year's wages. That's how much nard was in, nard, I guess is a big deal. I mean, that's how much was in this jar. How much do you make in a year? Just imagine an entire year's worth of wages is invested for this woman in this jar, and in this moment, she's pouring it all out on Jesus Christ. It's extravagant. It's offensive to those at the table in more than one way to see such extravagant generosity taking place. And so it says, they're going on about, hey, this could have been sold for more than a year's wages and all that money given to the poor, which just sounds so self-righteous. And it says they rebuked her harshly. Get the tone again. They're indignant. They're rebuking harshly. They're not offering suggestions. Hey, have you ever thought about? I mean, they're letting her have it. And then Jesus steps in in verse 6, and he says this, leave her alone. And I love that. Could you imagine the hushed whisper? Because they all thought they were in the right. Who does she think she is? And Jesus, the guest of honor at the table, says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you'll always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. And I love that, right? She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. And I tell you the truth, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will always be told in memory of her. Isn't that amazing? Preacher Sam from South Bend, Indiana is going to get up and tell this story that happened 2,000 years ago. And you know why? Because Jesus ensured that what she did will not be forgotten. 2,000 years later, we'll still tell the story of this woman who in a moment of daring the social norms of her day wanted to shower the Son of God with extravagant generosity because he, she knows he's at the table. That's what it means to leverage money for the sake of love. It's a love for God. And she knows who he is. And because of that, it's just possessions. It's just money. It's just nard. This is Jesus. It's just nard. It ha it, nothing is comparable in value 
than the one who's sitting at the table. And so you see this extravagant generosity. Let me give you another story we find in Luke chapter 10. This is, the first one's this love of God, the other is love of neighbor, and it's a popular story. I'm sure you've probably heard it before. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. This, this is what it says in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. The background's the same sort of situation. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So you know the motives, right? Always trying to trick Jesus, always trying to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? To which Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he's probably listening to Jesus earlier, right? He, he took down good notes, so he knows the right answer. To which Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But then we get to verse 29 and it says he wanted to justify himself which is never a good thing, by the way. Just, if you're ever talking to Jesus and you get that urge to justify yourself, just stop right there. It never works out. Don't ever try to justify yourself with Jesus. But he's trying this, and so he wants to know, well, who is my neighbor? I mean, really, like my next-door neighbor? Like, who is my neighbor that should receive love from me? And he gives them this shocking story. It says, there once was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he fell into the hands of robbers... And he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. That's the setting, right? Man was on, his, on the road, got beaten up by robbers. He's there half dead. Next comes the next character in verse 31, a priest. And when you hear the word priest, I mean, they are like the righteous ones among us. They're like God's servants. They attend to God. They attend to people. I mean, you would not hear priests and think to yourself, boo. I mean, they're priests. And Jesus says, now catch this in the story, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. Like he saw him right there on the road, decided to go the other direction so he wouldn't have to go, I mean, just kind of totally ignored him. Verse 32, so too, a Levite. Oh, well, sure, the Levite's got to be the hero. I mean, that goes all the way back. You're talking about Aaron. You're talking about, right, the sons of Jacob. I mean, we're talking long, faithful lineage, a Levite. And sort of, ooh, okay, come to Levite. Levite will do what's right. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by the other side. And then in verse 33, you get to this character, a Samaritan. And in this moment, if you're really Jewish, I mean a true Jew, I mean you were like, I am down with the law and I'm down with God and I am Jewish, you know your nemesis is the Samaritan. And you know why? Because the Samaritans were considering the day unclean. They used to be pure Jews, but then they decide to intermarry and intermingle with the other races of Assyria and etc., and they began to produce other children, and they were not pure Jews, and, the, and they called them Samaritans, and they are the nemesis of the Jews. The Jews and the Samaritans do not get along at all, and remember, Jesus' listeners are Jewish, and all of a sudden, Samaritans, and this is where, if we're in a silent movie, you'd hear all the boos and hisses. Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Not the priest, not the Levite, the Samaritan. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense you may have which Jesus says then, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Of course, the expert in law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. 
See, this is love leveraging money for the sake of others. It's the loving your neighbor as yourself. There's a man who's half dead. What is my oil? What is my wine? But to be used in this moment for the sake of this individual. What are these two silver coins? He says to the innkeeper, I'll take it on myself. I mean, my own possessions, my own treasure, anything you need to reimburse you, just take care of this man after he has, has to leave. It is an extravagant generosity motivated and leveraged by love. And Jesus says, you should go and do likewise. See, these are those moments when, when we see pictures on TV of Haiti and the things that go down. It is the leveraging of love that should cause us to respond. It's, what is this and what is that and what's this account of my teacher's credit? I mean, what is that except it ought to be leveraged for the sake of God and for the sake of other people? And in this, Jesus is saying, this is the filter by which we think about and by which we use money. And for some, it's a journey to get there. And I get that. Because I've been on the exact same journey. It doesn't usually start with, look at me, I'm an extravagant giver. We usually start somewhere else. For some, it's repulsion. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but for some, it's the idea of parting with your money to any cause or to any person is just like anathema, and you feel repulsed inside. That's why you don't like to watch news accounts. That's why you don't like to hear appeals. That's why when the preacher gets up and talks about money, it's like, oh, I came on the wrong week. You know, because that, it's that repulsion, right? The next step beyond repulsion is obligation. It is, all right, I'll do it. I don't really want to, but I know I'm supposed to. And so then we offer something to God or to others out of a spirit of obligation. Now, I think for God, he'll take it if it's from obligation, but that's not the highest place we want to be. And I've lived in obligation. I've lived in obligation quite a bit. I remember when I first moved here in 1997, began pastoring this church, I gave here at this church out of obligation. Kind of, you know, talk about last week and about kind of doing our budget and figuring out our bills. Newly married, had a six-month-old child, just got out of graduate school. So I got bills, I got debts, and figured out my budget. Whatever I had left at the end, I might give God some. But, you know, it's not a big deal. Just kind of out of obligation, you know. And then one day I was talking to Lee and Laura Camp. They used to live in this white house over here. Lee was a Notre Dame student finishing up his Ph.D., and he's now a professor in Nashville, Tennessee. And we were talking, I don't remember what we were talking about, but he started talking about tithing. And tithing is a biblical concept of giving like 10% of what you have coming in, like 10% of your income is a tithe. And he was just talking, matter of factly, I, I wish I would have recorded it so you'll know he wasn't bragging. He wasn't bragging at all. I don't know how it came up, but he was just kind of talking about how him and his wife, Laura, tithed, and he just kind of talked as if he assumed that I probably tithed too. I mean, who didn't tithe if you're following after Jesus? And, and, I, was, and I didn't say anything out loud, but I was thinking, I don't. <laughs> but I left thinking, why don't I tithe? I mean, Lee and Laura, I mean, they're in graduate school. They got more bills than I do. They don't have a full time. I mean, and I just started thinking, about, well, why is it that? And I was challenged in that moment to take one more step beyond not repulsion, but at least get out of my obligation and begin to see the power of investing in the kingdom of God and what God might be able to do with that. And so it moves you kind of to tithing. But I think that's not, the, that's not the final step. The final step is to move from tithing to just a heart that is extravagant by way of generosity. And that might be wrapped up in tithing, but the end is, I want my heart to be so extravagant by way of generosity that when Jesus is sitting at the table, nothing's too great for him. He deserves everything. That when I see people who are in need, when I see those who just, what, I mean, this isn't my possession, but what is it, given the fact that you're in need and that you need help, that there's an extravagant generosity that comes pouring out of my heart in such a way that God sees my heart and it moves his own heart because he sees, now that is being leveraged by love. Because, see, I can tithe, and that has nothing to do at times with my heart. You know that's possible? To give a 10% to tithe and to do so, and it be so totally detached from heart? In fact, Jesus encounters the same group called Pharisees one day. 
It says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, here's the situation. God cares about motive. It says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. This is Jesus talking. Just as a side note, if you're looking to win friends, this isn't necessarily the way to do it. But Jesus looks at these Pharisees and he calls them a bunch of hypocrites. And why? Because they were tithing a tenth so religiously. Remember, they're the ones who think we've got to keep all the laws, we've got to keep all the commandments, including the ones about tithing. And they were doing it to such perfection that they were taking even their spices, the minuscule spices, and dividing it so that a tenth could be given to the Lord. And so Jesus said, I see what you're doing. You're giving a 10% of your spices like mint and dill and cumin. He says, but this, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. I see that you're tithing, but it is devoid from your heart. It's not coming from a heart that's extravagant in generosity. It's not coming from a heart that is devoted to the love of God and to the love of others. It's a heart that's all about you and your religiosity. And you've neglected because of it weightier things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. And he says you should, not have, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Jesus doesn't say, oh, tithing. No, he says you should have been able to hold on to tithing from a heart that is able to recognize that the most important things are justice and mercy and faithfulness. And if I were to summarize those three words, it would be this, love. You've missed love. And Jesus wants us to leverage money based on love. And amazing things can happen. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 talks about this idea of how heart is important. Motives are important. Where it's coming from is important. Paul has a real heart for the church in Jerusalem because he's Jewish. And in Jerusalem, there's a famine, and the people there in Jerusalem are hurting, and they're walking through poverty. And in other parts of the Roman Empire, it's not so bad. And so Paul has this idea one day that he's going to go around to the other churches in the Roman Empire. He's going to take up a collection of money, and he's going to go back to Jerusalem and help out the starving Christians who are in the city of Jerusalem. And so he writes to one church in Corinth, to the city in Corinth, to talk about this offering. And this is what he says, encouraging it. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning of verse 1. He says, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, picture this in your mind. He's writing to the Corinthians, but he's talking about another group of churches in Macedonia, right? So, I want to, I wanna, let me tell you what's going on in Macedonia. He says, verse 2, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, put those terms together. Extreme poverty, severe trials, overwhelming joy, and rich generosity. Isn't that amazing? See, Paul wants the Corinthians to know, hey, look at what the Macedonian churches did. You see what kind of sprang out of their heart? Even though they're in the midst of their own suffering and their own poverty and their own trials, this is what happened. Verse 3, I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, now I'm starting to the Corinthians, you excel in everything. In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and even in your love for us, See now that you also excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Now, did you hear that? This is interesting to me. Paul says this is a test. It's a love test. What the Corinthian church is about to do by way of money will really be a test of the sincerity of their love. 
See, anybody, any church could gather together and sing, we love you, we love you. I mean, any, any church could do that. See, what, what Paul says is the real test, because heart and money are so tied together, a true test of the sincerity of love will come in that moment when we see, even in terms of our money and possessions and treasures that it is too, captured by the Lord Jesus Christ and his love just transforms it and leverages it for other things. It's a test. And so he goes on, he says, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that you eagerly, so your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there... The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. I love that. Paul knows. He knows our situations. Look, I don't expect you to give this amount if that's all you have. I mean, not about what you don't have. It's what you have and how it's leveraged by love. Verse 13, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality as it is written. He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. He goes on later in his argument as he's trying to talk to the church in Corinth and say, hey, you should really be a part of this. He gives some principles that I think are very valid by way of thinking about money and possessions. Over in chapter 9, verse 6, he says this. You should remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. What he's saying is if you live a life of stinginess, then you probably will not return much by way of that stinginess. But if you will be generous, it's quite possible way of principle that that same generosity will be turned on you again. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. This is important. Heart motives matter. Not reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you could be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. See, what he's saying is God will allow you to be blessed so that you could be a blessing to others. Out of your generosity, God will respond with blessing for you so you could continue to be a, a blessing for others. And I love what it says here at the end. It will result ultimately in thanksgiving to God. Your generosity will cause others around us to give thanks to God. Because we love the south side of South Bend and the 42,500 people who are in it, including the 11,800 children who are on the south side of South Bend, we thought it might be a good thing this year to sponsor a couple of little league teams. So this past week, we decided to sponsor a minor league ba a boys baseball team at the Southeast Little League and one of the South Side Little League over here, which is where I played as a kid just a few years ago. Uh, and I was having some email correspondence with those who were in charge of what, you know, how much does this cost and what, what's the process. And can you imagine little kids wearing Livingstone? You, we should go to the games and, like, root for Livingstone's church. Uh, you know, if they lose, it'd be bad. Anyhow, but uh, the guy who's in charge of sponsorships of the Southeast Little League wrote back. After asking my questions, his first thing is, first, I need to say this. 
And then he went on for a whole paragraph to talk about his wife as a teacher at Monroe School. And he was a full-time substitute at Monroe School. And he wanted me to know from him personally how much he appreciated the reality of, and the thanksgiving that comes from a church who just two months ago decided to send $2,000 over to Monroe, no strings attached, so they can have help with their after-school program. You see how that works? It causes people in our community to say, thank God for that church, Livingstone's Church. It happens when I get a letter this week from the pastor at the Broadway Christian Parish who received from us a couple thousand dollars just a couple months ago, no strings attached, just to say, we want to bless you and support you as you serve the least of these in our community. And it causes people to say, thank God for that church at 718 East Belmore Avenue. That's what generosity does. And extravagant generosity plants little seeds in the hearts of people to say, thank God. And you might have experienced that in your own life, and we know. Yeah, when people are extravagantly generous towards us, and especially to our kids, come on now, right? As parents, when somebody's generous with our kids, don't we just go, I'll, I'll take care of that person forever. If they need anything, they can count on me. I mean, that's what happens. It wells up in us. And the same thing happens with God. Verse 12, the service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And what I see is when money is leveraged by love, amazing things can happen in a community of faith. Even in the Livingstones Church, when money is leveraged by love, amazing things can happen. As I read through the account in the book of Acts of the early church in Jerusalem, it's just amazing what happens among them because of their conviction that Jesus really is raised from the dead and he sent the Holy Spirit to be here among us. And it transforms how we are church and it transforms community. And anytime you get a little glimpse, and every once in a while in Acts, there's a little tiny synopsis of here's what life looked like for the early church. Let me read you two of them. One is in Acts chapter 2. At the end of the chapter, it gives a little snip of what life was like. And it says this, beginning of verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles, and all the believers were together and had everything in common. Now, could you imagine that? Like they didn't even claim private ownership. What, they, what I have, what's mine is yours, and yours is mine, and could you imagine? Whoever drove the nicest car, let's just take it to lunch today afterwards. And I mean, nope, this is what it says. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. They were so motivated out of this concept of loving one another out of reverence for Christ that they're like, I got this. What is this to me? What's treasure? What's possessions? What's money when you're in need? And they would just sell it. And there every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Just two chapters later in chapter 4, you get another little synopsis. In verse 32, it says this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that, they had, that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were, listen to this, there were no needy persons among them. Could you imagine? Uh, could, you, could you imagine what a testimony that would be to the community we live in? There's no recession, no depression. This is about 
a church who acts in such a way as a community of faith that it does not have such a high regard for this is mine, this is mine, that when it has such a love for God and for others, it's just an advanced, overwhelming generosity that is poured out. And from time to time, it says, those who own lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. See, there is an order that I think God has for us, and it's true in all aspects of our life, relationships, marriage, parenting, but also in finances. And even in money, there is an order that I think God has for us, and in that, if we will choose to live in God's order, I think in it will be blessing. Now listen to me, I'm not promising like some prosperity gospel where, you know, hey, if you give some money, then God's going to, right? I mean, we're not, it's not like TV evangelism. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about, I'm just saying, when we live in his order, when it comes to the things of money, he is prone to bless it. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verses 10 to 12. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. You see the principle? See, if you have just very little, and yet even with that little, you still exemplify that complete generosity, then God knows I can give that person more and they will continue to be generous. It's who you are. You could be trusted with more because of what you did with the little. And he'll go on to say on the negative side, but whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. See, what Jesus is saying is we, tend, we tend to get in that, yeah, but when I get my debt paid off and when I'm in a better place financially, then I'll be in a position to really help other people and to really be able to be a blessing. To What Jesus says is, oh, no, you won't. I mean, I know you think that, and I know in your head that seems right to you, but that's not true. If you are self-centered and stingy now with the little, I could give you a million dollars, and you will still have the same heart that is selfish and stingy, and I mean, that's the way it is. He goes on to say, so if you've been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been truly trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And here's the deal. In terms of this order of God, it is the only place in the Bible that we are ever given explicit permission to test him. Like throughout the entirety of Scripture, nowhere do we have this open invitation of God saying to his people, you could test me on it. If you'll live in my order, let's see what it is that I'll do. Go ahead, try me. Just do it. So this morning what I want to extend you and offer to you is a dare, a double dog dare, to live in the order of God and to see what he does. This is where we can find this testing. It's in Malachi chapter 3, and I'll close with this. Now, remember last week we were in Malachi chapter 1 talking about leftovers and giving God the worst leftover sacrifice, right? When you get to, to Malachi chapter 3, listen to his words in it. He says in verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. <laughs> I like that. Because I'm faithful, I'm not going to smite you. But ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees. You've not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. And you might ask, well, how are we to return? This is God's response. Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? Which, of course, your next question will be, well, how are we robbing you, God? And he'll say this, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. Did you hear this? What does God say? You, you try me. Test me. See if I won't work. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. 
Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You just try them out. This is my challenge to you. It's a dare. Live in the order of God and see what he does. Now listen, I'm not promising you, you've heard that language, right? If you sow a seed of $100 in the next six months, you're going to, right? Ed McMahon will rise from the dead and give you that check from the clergy. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying this. God will take care of you. He will provide for you. He will not let you go hungry. I have never once met anybody whose financial life was ordered under God and it led to their ruin. Not once. Even if it's just for the month of February, I would challenge you, attempt to live under the order of God in terms of your financial life, and at the end of the February, let's see if you're not better off then than you are at the very beginning. And it'll be a money-back guarantee for me. <laughs> okay, I may have gone too far on that one. But I mean, but you see, that's the challenge. And what we want out of that is for our heart to be understandably tied in with our money to know that Really, we recognize he it's all his. And two, we want it to reflect that he really is our priority. And number three, in all things, we want to be driven by love in its use. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that you are faithful to us in every way. So thanks for letting us get to talk for money, and that makes me a little nervous and don't mind saying I'm glad to be transitioning after this week. But Lord, we don't want to let go of the reality that even with money, we know it's tied close to our heart. And because of that, it still needs to reflect that we love you and you are our greatest priority. And so would you allow us to take a step? It might be from moving from repulsion to obligation or obligation to tithing or tithing to be extravagantly generous. But we want to take another step to reflect even with money that we can love you and love others well, even in and through it. So Lord, just give us those opportunities and give us the faith to believe you. And so when you say to test you, I'm asking that we might take steps to truly test you and in the end know you really are faithful and you really are good. And it is your kindness that leads us to that. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Let's just sit and reflect for a moment on God's kindness. <laughs>